Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside Podcast. I'm Ginny Urich, and we have a special guest today who wrote a book that I love called Glow Kids. This is Nicholas Carderis, and um, we're so thankful that you joined us. Well, I'm thrilled to be here, Ginny, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so I read Glow Kids. It's been years now, and um, so it's always an absolute treat to sit across from from the author, you know, the, this is a really life-changing book. The subtitle is How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trance. Um, so can and you tell by, us... By, by, by the way, the follow-up book just got submitted to my publisher two weeks ago. All right. Another book that will be coming out shortly it's, called Digital Madness. It's so, needed. It's yeah, needed. Well, the, the new book is looking at digital madness, how big, de- big tech is driving our mental health pandemic. And it's really looking at at our anxiety, depression, suicide, overdose rates, and and the role that technology and big tech has played in our increasing mental unwellness, let's call it. So, yeah. Yeah. Digital madness. I can't wait to read it. It's interesting because you and I just chatted for just a very brief second right before we started about how all the statistics are continuing to change. You know, the statistics in this book, um, Mm -hmm. some of them are even from 2000. And so you Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, things that have already changed so much. Okay, you've got you've got quite the impressive bio here. Uh, Nicholas is a psychologist, an internationally renowned speaker, one of the country's foremost addiction experts, the CEO and founder of Omega Recovery in Austin, Maui Recovery in Hawaii. That's great. Okay. I think we should we should always put things in Hawaii. Also, the <laughs> former clinical professor at Stony Brook Medicine in New York. You specialized in teaching neurophysiology, um, treatment of addiction. You've taught neuropsychology at the doctoral level. You've been on all sorts of um, media outlets, CBS, Fox and Friends, NPR, Good Day New York, written for the Time Magazine, Scientific America, writing for Psychology Today. So can you just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how you how you came to become this best-selling author of Glow Kids in 10 Languages and um, how you have all these just impactful things going on? Yeah, well, I, yeah, so as you said, I've been working as a psychologist and working in mental health for about 20 years. And I noticed a shift about 10 years ago. And I had been working a lot with adolescents. I was doing a lot of school district-based work, um, just teenagers that were getting referred to me. And I started seeing, as an addiction specialist who also specializes in mental health, I started seeing a change happening. Um, And initially, there was sort of a drip, drip, drip of a faucet awareness that there was something shifting in the landscape of our of our children. And, and then sort of my tipping point happened. I write about it in Glow Kids when I had a young man that was referred to me. I was in full-blown state of, let's call it video game-induced psychosis. And he had been playing World of Warcraft for eight to 10 hours a night. He had been sleep-deprived. And when he was referred to me, he had no idea where the game ended and where reality began. He was in the matrix and couldn't discern reality. He had no psychiatric history before this episode. And, and that was sort of my aha moment because I had worked a lot with, we call those episodes derealization. You don't know what's real and what's not. And I worked with a lot of substance-induced derealization, um, crystal meth psychosis or the uh, bad acid trip. But I've never seen someone lose uh, their touch with reality on a screen experience. And so that was sort of a tipping point for me where I started to understand that this was a strange new phenomenon that we were dealing with. We hadn't seen things like this with reading books or even watching television. 
And that's that was really sort of the beginning of my beginning to research this more, clinically work with this more, create programming for this. And, you know, when I wrote Glow Kids uh, five years ago, when it came out five years ago, there was a lot of pushback that screens can be addicting or habit-forming. Um, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Post called Digital Heroin that went viral with 7 million views and shares. And, and that got me in a lot of national television shows where the where I was asked, really, can can screen time be habit-forming? And, and there was a lot of brain imaging science to back that up. And, and when I started talking about that, people were shocked. Today, it's an accepted fact that, oh, yeah, you know, we can all get habituated to our devices, especially vulnerable kids. But, but that wasn't the case five years ago. You know, I think we've all kind of come to the dance eventually and understood what's going on more and more clearly. More and more clearly, we've had big tech, um, let's call it the designers of this new, new brave new world, who have, you know, laid out their playbook. These are habit-forming platforms by design, you know, and, and documentaries like The Social Dilemma and uh, shows like that have pointed that out. So it validated my original thesis and I think COVID has validated the original thesis that too much screen time is toxic because that's what we've seen during COVID. We've seen screen time has doubled while depression rates have tripled and, and a whole host of other psychiatric disorders have also spiked during COVID that a lot of them are sort of meshed with isolation and being sedentary and quarantined in front of a screen all day. So that's how I got here. It's really interesting, Nicholas, you know, that, that there could have been such a change in five years, you know, like, I mean, five years is a fairly short period of time. And so for you to be saying things and people disagree, and then in five years, sort of it all, the dam breaks and all this information is out. I think that, you know, I told you before we started, I have eight pages of notes here. Because your book is so, it's really, really um, informational and informational in an interesting way. Um, but one of the, sort of the, I would say the thing that stuck with me the very most um, was this the sentence that said, uh, or this is a couple sentences, gaming companies will hire the best neurobiologists and neuroscientists to hook up electrodes to the test gamer. If they don't elicit the blood pressure that they shoot for, typically 180 over 120 or 140 within a few minutes of playing, they don't start sweating and increase their galvanic skin responses. They go back and tweak the game to get that maximum addicting and arousing response that they're looking for. That is a mouth dropping to me. That's a really high blood pressure. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the, that's the end game. No pun intended. The end game is, it's adrenalergic and dopaminergic because the, the two ingredients in creating a habit or habituation or addiction are dopamine and adrenaline and anything. Because at the end of the day, what creates engagement or what creates a lot of engagement with screen time is the arousal factor, right? They have to raise our adrenaline or they have to raise our dopamine levels because that's what keeps us coming back. And if they're not adrenalergic or dopaminergic, um, the game designers have not done their job. But the level of um, the level of sophistication, uh, you know, because people, you know, people have said to me, and it's true, we've always had advertisers and you know, people that were creating creative jingles for you know McDonald's or different toys. Yeah. But this is marketing at a, you know on steroids. This is a whole level of sophistication manipulation that we've not seen before, and and that's part of the problem why we've seen it so 
pervasive and so effective really with, with addicting kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what and, I got. And, I mean, and, and by the way, I think, you know, before you mentioned how quickly in five years we were, you know, kind of woke up, I think, I think we did, most of us, including myself, didn't want to believe that the things that we as the adults had fallen in love with. I, look, I love my smartphone and I grew up as a Star Trek junkie. I love my science fiction. I wanted to believe that our technology could, could be good for us. And I think um, eventually, though, you know, we had to be disabused of, you know, don't tell me that my smartphone or my tablet or my, you know, whatever, my, my laptop is somehow not good for my kids because say it ain't so, because now I've got to start restricting that. And a lot, a lot of us don't want to believe that. Yes. I love how you said you use the, the phrase guilt free tech. You said, yeah. I wanted it to be guilt. I think we all want yeah. it to be guilt free. Yeah. Because it offers all of us a lot. It offers the parent peace and quiet. You know, it offers the child sort of an easy engagement. And, um, you know, so you say in here, unfortunately, many caring and well-meaning parents are either simply not tuned in to how damaging screens are or those who sense it, there may be a problem remain in convenience-induced denial. That's like right off the bat. The book is really good. Um, So, so. Why is technology, why is it so addictive? Well, so, so if you look at, you know, if you look at the evolution of our entertainment media or everything, you know, they used to say, you know, when we've gone from print media to the radio, to the television, to modern screens, and, and let's, let's face it, people have sort of been a little bit sort of warning about the latest iteration of technology. I write in Glow Kids how, um, you know, Plato had warned against the written word because he thought that it was going to erode our memory. So he was weary of this thing called written copy because at that point we were, um, our main mode of communication was oral storytelling. So he was afraid that the written word was going to erode our memory. And to some degree, that's true, by the way. To some degree, folks who come from an oral storytelling tradition have better verbal memories than those of us who don't. Um, But the difference, I think the quantum the seismic shift or the quantum leap from television, I forget radio, but from visual media, from television to modern screen time, it's really twofold. It's the, so when we watch television as kids growing up, and I was, you know, growing up in the seventies watching Starsky and much, the TV was off in the distance. It was somewhere in the room and I was a passive removed viewer from the experience. So I was a passive viewer. Modern screen time is immersive and interactive. And so the immersive interactive aspect makes it much more um, psychodynamically impactful, right? It has much more of an impact on me because I'm in it, you know, and our kids are in it and our young adults are in their platforms. They're, they're yeah. in their, their gaming, they're in their social media. Um, and the other part of it is the ubiquity. It's all over, it's everywhere. You know, when we were watching TV back in, back in good old days, we had a, you know, I'm going to stereotype, but we had a big old TV in the living room. And, and maybe there was one in the bedroom and you didn't carry that, you know, 24 inch black and white TV in your back pocket. It was not as all available as it is. Mm. So there's now this sort of instant gratification piece too, that you constantly have the availability of it. So we've developed a dependence to these highly aroused and interactive devices that have become second nature. We reach for our phones, we reach for a device whenever we feel anxious or nervous because it's, it's, it's our crutch now. It's become our, it's, it's the new smoking. Mm-hmm. 
it's an interesting point too. And you talk about childhood and, you know, it's like as parents, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, well, Saturday morning cartoons ended at 1130. So there's no other option at that point. You know, and you know that, you know that it's going to end and it's not your parents' fault. It's just the programming. And so I think, you know, then it's harder for parents to be the, the gatekeeper there because like you said, it's everywhere and well, they're well, always well, available. Well, the other thing is, you know, depending on the age that a child or an infant gets on the modern, let's go with modern screens, right? The interactive modern screens. Um, we talk about creating uh, a dependency on a high impact stimulation, right? So now we're creating an impulsivity mm. or an ADHD profile um, because what happens now is, let's face it, screens and, and digital experiences are very stimulating, right? All the bells and whistles, it can be very arousing, but they're each inappropriate arousal. So what, what was best for us as kids or our children was going out into nature and playing make-believe. Because when you create your own game and your own fantasy, you're activating neurosynaptic pathways of imagination. You're creating your own visual imagery. When you play, um, you know, when you pick up a stick and you create a fort and you create these whole fantasy worlds, that's the most developmentally um, nurturing activity that a child can do. Now, instead of a child playing make-believe where they're using their own intrinsic imagery, now picture the child sitting in that, or the infant, God forbid, the six-month-old, the 12-month-old, the 18-month-old, sitting in that rocker and having the visual imagery programmed for them constantly. So what happens is not only do you become dependent on that really stimulating external stimuli to stay focused, and, and when you take that away, the child doesn't develop their attentional abilities, but now their imagination also atrophies. And I've worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids and teenagers, and I could always tell right away the ones that were the two-year-old on, on the tablet because they have almost no imagination. You ask them to draw a picture or write a story, and they're stimulating. I call them the shoulder shruggers. They don't have, they never developed the ability to create or to imagine because their imagination was programmed for them. And that's pretty uh, damaging. Well, it's an interesting thing, you know, as a parent, just practically speaking, that, you know, what what seems to make parenting easier, and maybe it does make it easier for this short period of time, actually makes it harder in the long run. So I love how you talk about that. You say, you know, algebra, you know, you say something like, you know, algebra homework just doesn't cut it. You know, they, they, if they're used to these fast scenes or, you know, just sitting outside and watching the ants walk by or, or those type of things, they no longer cut it because, um, you know, the child isn't interested for the amount of, of time it takes um, to enjoy those slower experiences. There was a, I quoted in the book, there was an education professor, Monkey, and he talked about the screen time compresses and accelerates everything to kind of an artificially synthetic uh, 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 platform. And he gives an example of like even watching a nature show on TV, right? Let's say you watch a fishing show on, and I, and I use this example, in, in the 30-minute fishing show, you're going to bait, you're going to bait your hook, you're going to catch the fish, you're going to reel it in and have it all done in 30 minutes. And then if you actually really go fishing, you find out that this might take five or six hours 
and you've already primed that person to think that everything's going to be ribbon wrapped. <laughs> you you may not catch cycle. any fish. You may not catch if any fish. The case. And, and that's and that's if you're watching like a you know a fishing show, which mm. is you know in the in the continuum of screen experiences is like the the most innocuous type of digital food that you could be consuming. Yeah. So all these experiences that are so stimulating, you know, I took, we went bowling, my family and I, like my boys are, I have twin sons who are now 14 and we haven't been bowling in a long time. And, um, and it's interesting because now you watch how almost everything has to compete against the stimulation of gaming, especially for young boys. Right. So we went wow. to this bowling alley and I remember a bowling alley, you know, growing up, it was a place with a lot of lanes and, and there was, um, and you walked into this place, and I could have sworn it was Las Vegas. Over every lane, there was giant screens, and there was lights and bells and whistles. And, and I said to my wife, what's, "What's happening here? Is this some kind of is this some kind of special bowling alley?" And she was like, "No, no, this is the way bowling alleys are today. Because if they don't have all the bells and whistles, they can't compete. A kid's not going to want to go bowling to a traditional bowling alley because they're so used to the Las Vegas effect that I like to call it. All the bells and whistles and neon and exploding things or else it's not engaging for them anymore. Wow. Yeah. What a difference Uh, you say. And I think that this is just an important thing to know as a parent, you say, the more I stimulate a child, the more I need to keep stimulating that child in order to hold his or her attention. Almost, um, you know, you relate it to being a drug addict. Well, you create a stimulation dependence, right? So whether it's cocaine or digital media, because they both, by the way, they did a dopamine study and they talked about dopaminergic. Dopaminergic means how dopamine activating or dopamine increasing in activity or substances. And Dr. Koch did this research way back in 1998. Um, and they found that uh, a 1998 video game, which is, you know, God knows that's ancient history now, but a 1998 video game was as dopamine activating as a sexual experience. It was 100% dopamine activating. And cocaine was about 300% dopamine activating. So not quite as much as cocaine, but as much as a, as a sexual experience, which is pretty, uh, you know, arousing. And, and, and I say more impactful than the sexual experience, and not to get crude for any of your viewers, but sexual experiences tend to be short-lived. Uh, a kid can play a video game for hours, days. I've worked with gamers who've had three or four days of playing in a row. So you're releasing this dopamine for an extended period of time. And so the stimulation uh, response that's happening. So now you're chasing, and in addiction psychology, we call it the dopamine reward loop. I've experienced something that tickles my dopamine or releases my dopamine. Feels good. Now I want some more. And then you, yeah. you round and round that wheel goes. Yeah. yeah. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about how, you know, that the, the big tech people, they didn't grow up this way. Bill Gates didn't have a computer until he was 13. Steve Jobs hadn't used one until he was 12. And that a lot of these big, big tech um, parents are putting their kids in Waldorf schools in low tech yeah. environments. So, um, you know, what is it that, that they know that we don't know? Well, we should really look at that. That's one of the most impactful things that I think people respond to, right? Because they they basically are telling us, do as we say, not as we do, right? Mm-hmm. It's the drug dealer that doesn't get high on their own supply, to use another analogy. Um, mm-hmm. So Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the founders of Google, they were Montessori students. Jeff Bezos was a Montessori student. So they didn't wow. mention Bill Gates. So all these tech titans with these brilliant minds of technology grew up tech-free in this Montessori or Waldorf types of experiential worlds. And yet they want your child and my child to be stuck in front of one of their devices when they're, you know, I, I joke around when they're in utero. If they could get an in utero device, we, we'd have a, you know, we'd have a, a preborn uh, in front of a screen. And so they know how impactful this stuff is. And what they also know, what they also know is we don't have to start kids on devices for them to be uh, digitally literate at two years old or five years old, you know, one of the people that I quoted, Glow Kids, who works at Silicon Valley, who was a Google engineer, said, we make this stuff to be idiot-proof. You're not going to be, because that's one of the narratives that I think a lot of well-intentioned parents fell into. They dragged the Kool-Aid that, well, we live in a technological world, which is true, but they dragged the Kool-Aid that earlier is better, or else their kid's going to fall behind. And so no parent wants their kid to be behind. And so you saw this younger and younger and younger onset of screen time for children. So school districts and parents were in this arms race for who can get more technology to their kids at younger and younger ages to have have a one-up on the neighboring school district or on the kids next door. So you went from computers and Chromebooks and iPads in the classroom from high school to the middle school to the elementary school, to not preschool. And and it's all this this, um, ill-conceived notion that somehow the kids are not going to be uh, literate in, in the digital world. And as you mentioned, and as I point out, all the tech times 
who have the most active outside the box imagination have tech-free childhoods. If you really want your kid to be creative in our technological world, don't put them on the device because it's going to sap their creativity. Um, and, and don't you yeah. do that in the digital world. And another one who didn't have a television until 13 is Stephen King. I remember reading that in his biography yeah, or autobiography. So well, there, yeah. Yeah, there's an imaginative. Uh, yes, exactly. Right there. Exactly. There, um, my midwife, her boys, um, when they were younger, went to a Waldorf school near where we live. And I was fascinated because they had to sign a contract that their kids, um, well, this would have been 10 years ago or so. Their kids couldn't even watch television like um, Sunday night to Thursday night or there was some sort of a contract there. And I just remember thinking because it, it distracts them, I think. And then that's what they're yeah. talking about at school. And I thought, what a what a different world to have no screens at all, you know, yeah. for a four to five day period in a row every single week. Yeah. So that's um, the ideal developmental model because then, yeah. then that's your child's brain is going to most robustly develop at that point. But yeah. it's it's hard, you know, it's hard for it parents hard. And, and it takes a lot more heavy lifting to be a tech cautious parent, as I like to call it. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about, because there were so many things in your book that just stopped me in my tracks, um, you know, because it's just such shocking information. One, one of the things that you talk about is, um, I should have numbered my pages here because now I'm getting confused, but you talk about, you'll know what it is, about eye contact and how um, there's statistics on, you know, how much eye contact people used to have and that we're losing um, uh, like a third, I found it, uh, children between the ages of 10 and 17 will experience nearly one-third fewer face-to-face -face interactions with other people throughout their lifetimes as a result of the increasingly electronic culture at home and in school. And that study is from 2000. Well, so, I think, so I think that's fascinating. The other important nugget of information um, is the other study that showed the importance of eye contact during interpersonal interaction. So what that other study showed was that for when when we talk uh, in person to each other, if we're not maintaining eye contact at least seventy percent of the time, that interaction doesn't have psychological or emotional resonance. So let's say you know if you're talking to someone in person and they have their head down, they're staring at their phone. You know that doesn't hit your your sweet spot of what you need in that interpersonal interaction. And what they found was that kids under twenty one are only making eye contact less than thirty percent of the time in face to face interactions. So even when our kids, God forbid, in the rare times that they're out of their bunker and they're out of their quarantines, even when they are interacting face-to-face, -face, we've vacuumed out eye contact out of how they interact. It's become a lost art. So the lost art of eye contact is to their psychological and emotional detriment because they need to be making eye contact. It's part of our hardwired psychological DNA to be able to look into people's eyes. It, and, and that's part of the reason why even zooming or, you know, when, when kids will say, well, you know, I get my socialization through my gaming platforms, but no, it's not quite the same. It's not, it's the illusion of social connection, but it's a counterfeit connection. Wow. That is really, and I didn't think about that. Yeah. They're not actually getting the eye contact through all these screen engagements. How well, and how it, 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 you know, in, in this age of, you know, COVID and quarantines, you know, what I have said, and I've said it recently, it's better to have a Zoom 
a Zoom session with grandma, but no contact with grandma, you know, we'll take that. But the gold standard is face-to-face. Now I get it. Sometimes, you know, we haven't been able to, and, and there's been a benefit to be able to Zoom with family members to have some level of contact, but that's, that's second tier benefit. That's not the first tier ideal benefit that we can get. Yeah. What I love about your book is that it, it lays out these practical reasons about why we should change. You know, so, you know, if you know that these video games are meant to raise the blood pressure, it's a, it's just that little extra, like, you know, like kicking the pants, <laughs> a gentle kick in the pants to make a change. Or if you know that, you know, you should be making eye contact 70% of the time, it's that little nudge as a parent to set my phone down, you know, to make sure we don't have screens out at dinner, um, Another one of the really big sort of hit me in the face things was this um, study that 15 years ago, people could distinguish that we're losing sensory awareness. So at a shocking rate. So it says 15 years ago, people could distinguish 300,000 sounds. Today, many children can't go beyond 100,000. And 20 years ago, the average subject could detect 350 different shades of a particular color. And today the number is 130. Like we're really losing. What, what What's happening here? Yeah, that study was out of Germany for the University of Tobago. Um, so essentially because we're getting so bombarded by stimulation, we're getting 24-7, you know, beeping, tweeting, screen, you know, again, the bells and whistles, it's dulling our senses, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, think about if you go to a really loud movie, you know, if you go to see some kind of Marvel Spider-Man movie in the you know, IMAX around sound, then when you step out of the movie theater, your hearing is a little bit, you know, kind of not, you know, you have some ringing in the ears. Um, it's the same thing with sort of the visualization when you get so much visual content. Um, so it's, it's dulling, it's eroding our sense of sensory, it's called sensory acuity. And this other social psychologist, uh, Marsha McCulloch, uh, years ago, decades ago, studied indigenous kids and, and their sensory acuity versus uh, industrial kids, kids from industrial societies. And, you know, maybe shocking, maybe not so shocking, but these indigenous children, their sensory acuity was significantly more pronounced because these kids, right, they have to sit in nature and they're aware of every little movement and nuance and color. They're aware that they're, they're not living in a little Las Vegas, you know, uh, color spectrum wheel that's that's flashing and, and beeping all the time. So they had not only much more sensory acuity, but then Marshall McKeelak found that when those indigenous kids were put into a, a modern classroom, their ability to learn was almost double modern children. Because um, these kids' brains were much more sponge-like and receptive because they hadn't been dulled down. I, I guess that's the best way that I could put it. Our kids have been dulled down. Yeah. I mean, I have that part bolded in my notes because that was another one that I found was fascinating. You say, you know, I think because you use the phrase so many times, you know, well-meaning parents. And I think that is what we all are. We're well-meaning parents and we want to give our kids whatever advantages that we can. And so if this says sensory acuity and sensitivity to the environment are 30% higher, you know, from the primitive societies, um, the ability to learn three or four times greater, far superior attention, comprehension and retention, less tech is better minds and better learners. Um, you know, but this is, this flies a little counterintuitively into the face of sort of what we've been told. 
Yeah, and, and that's why I think it's it's false Kool-Aid that we've been given because there's no study, and I do a lot of speaking at education conferences, there's not one study that shows more tech leads to better educational outcomes. And if you ask any school superintendent, if you ask any uh, educator, show me the study that more tech is good, that more tech is led to measurable, better outcomes in, you know, giving a Chromebook to a kindergartner leads to better educational outcomes in high school. And you get some version of humana, 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 but the big tech companies say it's good for our kids, but they can't quantify it because the reality is it's not true. The schools that have the lowest uh, technology in the classroom have better outcomes. The countries that have lower technology in the classroom have better outcomes. And I mentioned Finland because Finland is always at the top of the educational food chain internationally. And they don't have uh, their minister of education has uh, not allowed handheld devices in the classroom because they're distractions. And, and so they get it. They understand that the best way to educate our kids is, is the traditional Socratic circle uh, a smart teacher at the front of a classroom in a back and forth question and answer type of thing, not sticking a kid in front of a, a computer. And I hate to say it, once again, COVID proved that thesis. You know, we saw what Zoom schooling did educationally. That data is in. And now they're talking about kids that have lost a year of school time, cognitive delays. Now, forget the depression and anxiety. That was a given. But educationally, it wasn't valid pedagogically. And yet all these school administrators were drinking the, 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 the tech Kool-Aid and they were forcing all this technology on kids and on parents. And it was just a, it was a disaster before COVID, but COVID just showed us just how much of a disaster it was. I love how you say, you know, instead of spending money on, on more technology, just get another teacher, <laughs> you know, have another real life body in the classroom <laughs> that kids can interact with. Uh, you have a, you have a lot in your book just about a real world interaction that you say the brain organizes itself around experience. Um, and I, so I would love to talk a little bit about that. Just sort of um, you, you touched on it earlier with imagination that you like, you can lose your pathways. Um, so, you know, how does touch and, and real life shared experiences, how do they help um, kids in their, in their brain growth? Well, we talked before, so the most developmentally sound thing that you can do for a child is, is when they use their hand-eye coordination. So if a kid picks up a stick or plays with Lego and they're manipulating spatial things in, in space, um, that starts making connections in their mind. You know, if I can pick up four blocks and I can make a castle, so I'm activating the neurosynaptic pathways for imagination, but I'm also creating spatial awareness and um, geometric awareness, let's call it. Uh, what they found was that infants that were raised on screens, and this, this one blew me away, they, were, they didn't know what to do with blocks that were laid in front of them. Like that kids were now not able to play with blocks because it was like, it does not compute. They couldn't pick up one block and put it on top of the other because that kind of developmental um, ability seemed to, that window seemed to have closed for that child because that child was playing Minecraft, let's say, and doing it electronically. And so um, all those, so many of these things are so developmentally appropriate at key stages, our ability to develop our attention, our ability to develop our creativity, our ability to develop our interpersonal communication skills, our ability to read social cues, um, all these things 
get baked into human beings at very critical times. But if you drop electronics into that equation too much, too soon, too quickly, what you do is you dampen all of those experiences. So, so now you don't have a kid that's experiencing the real world in nature. You have it, you know, and how the real world operates, how the universe works. You have a kid living in the digital landscape. And, and you know, it, it struck me, you know, I, I think I mentioned it in the book. I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the book, but I remember I saw there was a newborn rocker that, that they were selling. So this was a little rocking seat for kids that were just born. And it had a little screen over their little faces that had stars and squares and circles and the box. The box was so, you know, here's the insidious marketing. Educational. Like this newborn needs to be seeing some kind of lights over its face. What the newborn needs to be looking at is its surroundings and watching how things move in space and then beginning to what we call individuate from mother over time and being able to understand uh, uh, experience through uh, the real world. When you add these really um, reality blurring, because now, like, let's talk about the four or five-year-old playing an immersive video game on a huge uh, plasma screen TV, where the reality blurs, that's when you have instances of what happens with the young man that I worked with who thought he was in the matrix. Now you have kids who are also developing because there's a developmental window where we do what's called reality testing, where a child begins to realize what it's not real. And when maybe you and I grew up watching The Roadrunner or Bugs Bunny, okay, we understood this is a cartoon on a screen because there wasn't that level of hyper-realism. Now the five-year-old is in this world and the experiences are around him. And how does that kid know what's real and what's not? Where does he begin to delineate where the digital fantasy ends and reality begins? So we're doing reality blurring types of things that are not really healthy for children at that stage of their lives. Mm-hmm. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. 
Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. I um I have this uh, part of your book <clears throat> that I actually refer to. This is probably the thing that I refer to the most um, is that I learned in your book that our brains are wired for novelty. Um, you say the need for reward and, and thirst. For, and so going back to babies. Neophilia. Um, say, it's called ne- neophilia. Okay. You say from the time a baby mm-hmm. can crawl, it seeks the new and the different. And so there's this hardwired thirst for novelty. And this is what like the tweets and the, the pings and the Instagram photos. It's like, it's like playing on this hardwired need that we have. And, the reason I talk about it a lot is because nature provides that for us. You know, you know, my garden provides that for me and, and there's so much novelty out there and things are new and exciting. And even for my kids and, and you get to search underneath, you get to dig and try and find the potatoes and, you know, you you don't really know what's going to grow or where it's going to grow and how big it's going to get. And um, so I, I, but it takes too long, but it takes too long. Right. Our, Our need for novelty yeah, neophilia, the, the love of the new. It's an evolutionary adaptation that kept us alive as a species. Our curiosity was life-sustaining because we weren't the biggest or the strongest species, um, but our curiosity helped us adapt to our environment. So we, our curiosity helped us to develop new types of uh, farming or to develop new types of uh, 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 landscapes to, to cultivate or to develop tools or to invent fire. These are all byproducts of a curious species with an inventive mind yeah. and it kept us alive. So, so it's hardwired into our psychological DNA and what some of these uh, digital platforms hijack is our curiosity. So when we're doing a scroll or a digital scroll and we just want to see what's next, what's right below the next one, the next one, the next one, we're so curious that we have a hard time. It's like eating that, you know, first potato chip in the bag. You want to kind of eat the next one. And, and so each each little, well, and I find it particularly insidious in scrolls because, you know, Facebook very insidiously created the, the, the news feed as being a bottom scroll. Because once upon a time, it used to have a, a, there was an end to it, there was a bottom page. Um, but they found that we're always just wanting to get to the next one. The next one might be more interesting and, and more curiosity uh, mm-hmm. tickling. So, yeah, they hijacked that. Yeah, they're, they're playing on that need that we have. And I, I have found, I think about it so often because when we go outside, particularly the garden, because there's big leaves and you have to look underneath and it's like an adult version of hide and seek and it's just fun. So it makes me think about um, about that novelty. You talk in your book about um, 
Well, you talk in your book about nature. So that's ex- that was really exciting for me. You talk quite a bit which about is why, it. Which is why we have a program in Hawaii, which is why, you know, we've spent, and my children have spent a lot of time in Hawaii. And, with, and you look at some of the young kids who are raised in a more natural setting in Hawaii. You know, there's, you know, there's a, a Waldorf school in uh, Maui that we've spent some time on. And those kids are very different than um, kids who are raised in urban centers. You know, I talk about in the new book that I wrote, um, my father was raised in uh, a village in northern Greece. And, you know, they didn't have electricity till, you know, till he moved to Athens when he was 18. And he was profoundly nature uh, immersed and uh, till, till he died fairly recently. Um, his garden his, 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 was such a life-sustaining force for him. You know, he planted trees in his village you know, in the 1930s that are now these towering trees. But he talked about how much they nurtured his soul and how important that was for him. My father didn't understand the modern world that we lived in. He lived in New York and um, he was a stranger in a strange land because he didn't understand this new digital world that we live in. He thought it was preposterous. He said, Nico, how are people living the way that they're living? You know, this is not natural. You know, this is not the way we were meant to live. And I would like to say, oh, dad, you're just, you know, oh, you, you old timer, you know, you, you know, kind of, but there was a lot of wisdom to what he said. And, and, and there was a lot of longevity. That's, you know, when we look at things and I write this in my current book, uh, digital madness, when we look at things like blue zones, parts of the world where people have extreme longevity, um, and when we look at some of the depression research by Dr. Stephen Nilardi, who has found that the least depressed peoples in the world are indigenous peoples, and then when you look at blue zones, the people that live the longest have them. There's several ingredients. Some of them are dietary, but one of the biggest one is close-knit community and physical activity, and, and usually there's a lot of nature involved, too. So these seem to be the ingredients that that we need as human beings. We need community, physical activity. We need a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives, typically. And and, and all those, and nature, and all those things, if you look at what what has the digital age done, it's it's been a nuclear bomb on on all of that, all of that. Yeah, it sure has. And and I found it interesting, you know, when you talk in your book about these tech fasts, um, you know, sort of breaking free, uh, you say it takes a long time. And, and this, to me, I was surprised to, to read how long it might take. Like you say, the prescribed amount of time is four to six weeks. That's the amount of time that is usually required for a hyper-aroused nervous system to reset itself. So I think that's actually really important for parents to be aware. Maybe it's not going to take four to six weeks for every child, you know, but it might take four to six days or it's going to take, you know, if you're trying to reset, you might have to commit to this longer period of time. Um, can that's you right. talk about that a little bit? I haven't read about that many other places about sort of that breaking free period. Well, it's like anything else. So, so the adrenal thermostat has gone on high alert because again, too much stimulation, too much stimulation. So the, your adrenal system goes through what's called adrenal fatigue. Um, so when your adrenals are too stimulated for too long of a period of time, essentially you're in fight or flight for too long. Uh, and the adrenal response is the fight or flight response. And so evolutionarily, the fight or flight response was baked into us to be a short lived response, five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, the, uh, the tiger jumps out of the bush and we, we, we activate our adrenal response. We get adrenaline to our hands and our feet so we can run away or we can fight. But then when the tiger 
goes away, we're supposed to kind of go back to our baseline level. But what we're doing now is we're raising the fight or flight response and we're keeping it on high alert for days, weeks, months, years. It's very similar to what happens in a, a PTSD profile or an anxiety, a high anxiety profile. Their adrenal thermostat is on too high for too long. So it takes time to recalibrate that and to lower your adrenals to not be hypervigilant or overreactive because, you know, you're very jumpy. People that have adrenal fatigue tend to be very jumpy and very sort of anxious and uh, panicky. And it could look like ADHD, by the way, for children in the classroom because they look very kind of, you know, uh, over you know, hyperarousable. So, so if you've crossed that line, that does take four to six weeks for it to kind of, for that thermostat to go back to baseline. But in the meantime, what I, I talk about doing dopamine replacement therapy, when you're unplugging that kid, what you don't want to do is you don't want to unplug and do a tech fast and just sit on your hands and stare at the wall. Hey, why not try to do something that's engaging in the natural world? Why not take the kid on a hike? Why not go do something that's, that's exciting, but that's in the real world so that you're, you're, you're substituting things rather than just taking things away and having that child, you know, quote unquote, suffer as if they're in a, an empty room. And that can so be exciting, important. you know, is the, I think you can, you can promote it that way as a parent. Parenting, I think, is so much about how you present. We're going to do this, you know. I mean, we've right. done that with our own kids. Um, and you just got to kind of like play it off a little bit. Well, the, and the best way to play it off if you do have to backdoor that and you don't want to tell your kid you're unplugging them is, is a camp experience is to tell your kid, guess what? You're going to wait to camp for the weekend, the week, yeah. two weeks or whatever it is. And you sell that as the adventure and you don't say I'm doing it because I want to unplug you for a few weeks. Oh, by the way, they don't allow, you know, devices mm-hmm. there. Yeah. But check this out. You're going to go to this fun adventure. And, and that's been a helpful way for parents to reframe things. By the way, the treatment program that I run, you know, when I talk to Failure to launch 20-year-olds who have flunked out of college because of too much screen time. And, you know, that's how I try to get them to come into our treatment program. It's like, look, you're going to have an adventure. You're going to have, you're going to meet some young people. You're going to go on hikes. You're going to play some volleyball. You're going to go kayaking. You're going to get all this. It's going to be fun, you know, because at the end of the day. I want to come. (laughs) That sounds fun. Sign me up. Right. It's in Hawaii, right? (laughs) Or there was a couple of them. We, we do it in Austin as well. Austin's yeah. got a nice mix of nature in a, in a, in a more urban setting. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's just, a, it shows the power in just in the real world and, and for people to connect. Um, I would say the, the quote of yours that I share the most is this one. Um, and this, this will probably end with this because we're running out of time here, but um you know, if anybody wants to read more, the book is fantastic. And, and I'm excited to read Digital Madness. I'm so glad you wrote another book that's fantastic. This one has been so impactful. You say, if you want, if you really want a child to thrive and blossom, which this is what parents really want, you say, lose the screens for the first few years of their lives. During those key developmental periods, let them engage in creative play. You talk about Legos, you know, hand-eye coordination, nurtures synaptic growth, um, you say cooking, playing music, uh, you say, but most importantly, let them experience boredom. There is nothing healthier for a child than to, nothing healthier, these are such huge statements, for a child than to learn how to use their own interior resources to work through the challenges of being bored. 
This then acts as the fertile ground for developing their powers of observation, cultivating patience, developing an active imagination, and you say the most developmentally and neurosynaptically important skill they can learn is developing an active imagination. So this to me, it's just, it's so motivating that one little paragraph. Um, so, you know, why, why do parents want, and I, mean, I think kids are not bored these days, you know, there's activities and screens and, but why do we want our kids to be bored? Well, I mean, you, you kind of read why we want them to be bored. The question that I haven't been able to figure out is why are we as parents so uncomfortable with our kids being bored in a way that prior generations never really were obsessed mm. over? Um, you know, in our helicopter parenting uh, generation, there is this overfixation on keeping little Johnny and Susie perpetually um, entertained. Like, we're not, we, it's we, it's our fault. We, the parents, are not comfortable. You know, so if we're going on a long drive, God forbid we talk to the kids in the back seat, we have to stick them in front of a, uh, a screen in the back seat. If we're, um, like you said, the digital babysitter becomes the default mechanism for parents. and. And they rationalize it by saying, well, it's educational. The box, the school said it was educational. So I feel at least not as guilty by putting it in front of the screen. Um, I don't know, because, you know, when I was growing up, my, my parents certainly had no problem just saying, figure it out, go outside and, you know, yeah. <laughs> come back in eight hours and, and figure it out. And that gave me a sense of exploration, a sense of figuring out my environment. And yet all these parents, so many of these parents that I work with, are so hardwired uh, discomfort where if they see their child sitting still even for a moment. And, and when I have to reframe it saying, that's the best thing that your child can be doing because your child now has to, has to entertain, create his own imagination, his own observation. He's got to do something without boredom that's productive and you're synaptically um, uh, uh, growing within his own mind. Um, but the worst thing you can do is do a song and dance and keep that child entertained because you're uncomfortable with his boredom or her boredom. Um, I, that was so mo motivating to me. The most neurosynaptically and developmentally important skill they can learn is developing an active imagination. And I don't know if you've read any of John Taylor Gatto's works, but he talks about learning to enjoy your own company. You know, like we, we don't do that because we're just constantly uh, entertained and always have this screen. And so just to learn to be right. by yourself. And uh, I just I just want to just reiterate how much I really um, appreciate your book, uh, Glow Kids, how screen addiction is hijacking our kids and how to break the trance. There's so many things in here that I learned that I didn't know that have impacted our parenting. Um, and I know people are loving your book. It's in 10 languages. So if people are interested in finding you um, and finding your book, where, where should we send them? Well, the book is uh, is available on, I was going to say, unfortunately, Amazon. Amazon is, uh, yes, yeah, so it's available on, on Amazon, hardcover, softcover. It's also available on Kindle. And, uh, and my website is www.drcardaris.com. And uh, those are probably the best places to uh, reach out and, uh, and uh, and your new book, when uh, when is that expected to come out? Yeah, so my publisher, St. Martin's Press, just got submitted. So we're going through, you know, publishing is, is a lengthy process. So it'll be in the fall, the fall of, of the upcoming year. So September, wow. like back to school, September of 20. Yeah, great. Can't wait yeah. to read it. I'll make sure people know about it. Can we end with a real quick favorite outdoor, real life, hands-on childhood memory of yours? 
Well, so we, yeah, we used to go back to my parents' native Greece, uh, not every summer, but but often. And, and I just remember my, my mother's island of Cephalonia, which is on the Ionian Sea, is a combination of mountain and ocean. And just uh, spending endless days just wandering, you know, really just wandering around this beautiful landscape and uh, really feeling connected, not just geographically, but culturally. Uh, in sense, I think that's also important too a geographic and cultural connection uh, that helped give me a sense of grounding in my life as I grew, as I moved forward in my life. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Have a great tech cautious uh, holidays. Yes, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.